0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, A Song of Ice and Fire, Episode 88, Jamie 9, In a Storm of Swords. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You know me from the internet as Lies Arbor on Twitter or from
1: LiesandArborGold.com, my blog. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit or on the Mason Monthly podcast. Maybe you know me from Twitter as Arithmetric.
0: I don't message you a lot on Facebook, but the other day I messaged you for the first time in a while on Facebook, just because we were there, and I forgot that I have you saved as Other Girl.
1: I have you saved as Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I it's appreciate that. Jeff for your ah. name, and I was like, this is confusing. <laughs> yeah, you,
0: we should maybe change it. I, I appreciate our aesthetic there. That was I mean, good.
1: I know it's different because you also have a different color. For your chat box. I think yours is like a sky blue versus the Facebook blue or whatever. Gotta be different. You know what I mean? (laughs) It is different. God, I am
0: sad. This chapter is sad.
1: It's a lot. It's It's very
0: heavy. It's heavy. It's sad. Like, I I didn't even realize it. You know, sometimes I read it and then I just like tear in and make some quick notes but sometimes I like, I don't, I don't, I haven't often taken the time on a chapter lately. And this weekend, I did a lot of reading for the cast and for personal pleasures. And I actually read the chapter just like on its own. I read actually about five chapters after this. Crazy shit, right? In Storm or Jamie? In Storm. I was going to keep mm. going. And then like Sandor was about to die. And I was like, oh, fuck this shit. Yeah, I got like through the Tyrian. I got through, I got I got through a few things, but I I stopped. I was like, man, this is sad. (laughs) Sad book.
1: I'm sad. It Uh, is too much for me. I don't begrudge people who for whom they say this is like their favorite of the five books. Like I get it. Oh
0: yeah. it, it is eloquently written. Everything falls in line, it's heartbreak after heartbreak. It's stab, 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 rip, rip, rip. It sucks. This this chapter is like one of those glorious, sad, heartbreaky, like oh I can't believe this is happening. Good chapter-ish. It's like good at the end, but it's like so heavy to get there.
1: Yeah, it's a very like fast-paced, tightly written book though. Even though it's yeah. like what second largest, right? Out of the <laughs> five books. Thick. <laughs> it is, though hey we got a lot of
0: emails and we keep saying oh we're gonna get to more we're gonna get to more and we keep just doing like onesies and twosies so we are gonna give you some fast and heavy emails tweets of notes reviews from some friends some followers some patrons some buddies um some familia i'm excited about this we got an email from one of our friends ellie she said hey girls You've been talking about Jamie and his sword hand and comparing him to John, which reminded me of John's burned sword hand. While he could still wield a sword and is known to be a good fighter, it made me think to those burns in the Asora High prophecy, specifically being born in smoke and salt. Everyone points to the Tower of Joy for that, but I think we should consider his fighting the white as well. There was obviously smoke from curtains, and afterwards John mentions Ghost, the best of doggos, yes, being the only hearing John crying from the pain. Salt. Plus, this is right after he said his vows, right before Mormont demands he make a decision between the Wall and House Stark, and also right before the Red Comet. In theory, it means it's probably the same time as Danny's rebirth with the dragons. I think John's rebirth after being stabbed will fully include smoke and salt, but thought this was interesting, that his second birth as a member of the Watch coincided so well with the prophecy. I haven't heard this discussed that much. Mm, I like that a lot, too. I think that's really... Well framed in general. I didn't really think of that as the other version of the prophecy, but it makes sense.
1: Yeah, I've heard other ways that it's framed around things that happen in John's life, but I haven't heard it uh tied to when he gets his hand burned. And I think that as I said, that does tie in very well thematically with what we're seeing for JB's character. I like that interpretation. I- I'm still like maybe in the camp that we'll never know and that it'll always be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Who the prophecies are. I think it's
0: better that way. I know we're going to talk this episode about your distaste for the prophecy, I'm sure, again.
1: Just that one.
0: Just that one. I know you like others. Um, But this one, I don't know. I think it's better ambiguous. I I kind of agree on the ambiguous prophecy train that, like, it's better off that way here.
1: I I think they both
0: kind of are. I think Azor Ahai was the friends we made along the way.
1: Oh, my God. Uh (laughs) Uh, you it's mean the last, <laughs> the last hero? The last hero is is the friends we made along the way and the friends that we lost. A lot weight. Uh Jojen. <laughs> so speaking of friends that we made along the way, we got some other emails, both with similar energy. One is from uh, one of the Pete's via email and the other is from Miss Mama on Podbean. And I just like am touched that people <sighs> This is how I'm interpreting it. Okay. People were just so concerned about my uh joy. That they were like, Eliana, you don't have to be stressed about uh, people running out of pages in the white book. And as both pointed out, you know, you can... Miss Mama talked about the screw binding, uh, screw post binding Mm -hmm. in books that would allow for more pages to be Mm -hmm. added. And Pete was talking about the spine and how, you know, because manuscripts um, were made on... Some were written on vellum, a.k.a. calf skin leather, and uh could have just had the pages sewn back in. So thank you, everyone, for bringing this to me. And actually, you know what I realize is the modern day version of this. I've seen there are now like notebooks with like magnetic pages. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, somebody on Etsy has actually made a blank white book, a blank book of brothers. It's amazing. It's like 70 oh. something dollars. And I'm tempted. I was like, oh. that's not
1: as much as I thought it would be. I know. I thought it should be far more,
0: but shipping might be not factored in. But mm-hmm. um,
1: It's just like know. the folio versions, right? The folio versions that are coming out. One came out of Game of Thrones. The other one yes. for Clash is coming out soon. They're beautiful, but those are like real pricey. That's why I'm like, 70, damn, sounds like a steal. Okay. And it was
0: like well-bound and beautiful and hand-painted and had brackets and shit on it. I don't know. We got another email from Shadow Fox and... I don't know. I, I I was really into this one because it's very on point. They've been watching the history of Westeros, Valerie Reedus, uh, that we talked about a bit ago, like last episode or the episode before. Those what are do we fun. talk about? We talked about a lot of stuff. And uh, Joe Buckley has been doing the extra, the scraps and scrolls to coincide with that. So that's really fun. But he uh, Shadowfax has been thinking about Boros Blunt. Wondering what his story could be in The Wind's of Winter and A Dream of Spring, which I think is generous, but I like your spirit, Shadow Fox. He says, Boris is a Kingsguard of no skill or renown, and to the rest of my knowledge, which is limited, lol, big mood. We don't know the how, why, or when of his entry into Kingsguard. During the story, we know him as the man that'll do whatever he's told, from, you know, including beating the crap out of Sansa without protest, or selling Tommen out in the riots, Becoming his food taster, yada yada. Will he have a chance to prove he's not a coward? To die in defense of Tom and or do some other brave deed? Or will he be exactly what we think he is? No redemption, an old cowardly man, no pride or honor. We know George puts lots of thought and backstory into many characters. It's not silly to question that he might have done something here with this minor character. Uh, it's, it's very thoughtful. I... I hate to be the bummer, though. I'm gonna be a bummer. Nothing's ever fun about being poisoned. I guess. Are you gonna be? Is...
1: Are you gonna be blunt? Yeah, blunt. I hate to blunt be blunt about
0: it. I hate to be blunt about it, you guys. Boros, blunt. But if you remember, in a dance with dragons, in the epilogue, Boros is not in good shape. Right? He's being Tommen's food taster. Yes, and he's like leaning on the wall for support, looking gray and like grim, like keeled over, kind of makes me think since we're seeing him in Kevin's POV as he suffers at his job, Varys is most definitely poisoning him, or having someone poison him, which is also likely considering that we talked about poison heavily in the last chapter, and in Tyrion Nine Storm of Swords, we hear at his trial... Varys confirmed Tyrion's midnight visit to Grandmaster Pycelle's chambers, and the theft of his poisons and potions, confirmed the threat he'd made to Cersei when the night of their supper, confirmed every bloody thing but the poisoning itself. When Prince Oberyn asked him how he could possibly know all this, having not been present at these events, the eunuch giggled and said, My little birds told me, knowing's their purpose, and mine. Ah, a eunuch's weapon. I think Boros will be dead soon. Is is what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, it reminds me actually of John Aaron, although at the beginning of the story. Yeah, the way it's framed
0: from like
1: the POV of Kevin, that he is
0: uh, Kevin's floating along, everything's great and giddy and happy in Lannister Land, right? Like they're finally getting everything they want. Kevin's like Cersei's going back to Casterly Rock right? Yeah. Uh, everything's going great. We have Tommen under control. Now we just gotta chill. Like, yeah, Tywin died, but I still got it. I'm holding down, holding down the fort. And then Varius is like, haha, what's up, bitch? You've been punked. And he just like shows up, crossbow in hands, and he's like, welcome to MTV Cribs. Here's Grandmaster Maester Pycelle. This bitch is dead. Yeah, Boros Blount, you see it from Kevin's POV that Boros is, like, keeled over, like, trying to do his job, barely doing his job, obviously been poisoned. I think we know. We've been known. Yeah. Not looking good,
1: that's all. Doesn't look good for Boros. Maybe, yeah, he's being left alive for what? He'll probably be dead. I don't think Varys wants any witnesses left. But yeah, it's like Kevin- Kevin didn't even, uh. He didn't think, oh, what an interesting red flag that the food taster seems right. to be getting weaker. It's almost like I saw this happen before, but it, then again, they did really think that John Aaron was poisoned at the beginning of the series, but it's like. Yeah. In- interesting, Poros. Interesting, Kevin. Anyways, we got another email from our friend Michael Yaney who, and I we just had to include this, it's perfect for this episode, says, yes. was just thinking about how for a moment the Lannisters had two Valyrian steel swords in their family. The last time that happened in Westeros was with the Targaryens, until Aegon IV gave Blackfyre to Daemon I, the Targaryen bastard. Similarly, Tywin gives Widow's Whale to Joffrey, a Lannister bastard. That's all I got. It's It's a good thing you got there, Michael. That's real good. You should be proud of that. And I think,
0: like, thematically... So there's this idea, and we'll probably talk about this as we get more into the sword, this chapter, but Valyrian steel requiring a blood sacrifice, right? That's an idea that's floating out in the universe people have put forward, that uh, the only way to properly craft Valyrian steel involves a sacrifice of sorts. And thematically, or Dragonfire, right? And thematically, this had a blood sacrifice, right? Widow's wail, it could be Catalan's wailing at the Red Wedding, or Cersei's wailing at the Purple Wedding.
1: Yes, it really ties in well throughout this book, absolutely. And, of course, that it was once all one sword, Ice, but we're going to get into the other, the other sword of that later today. Tonight, mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do,
0: do, 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 do. Hey, we have one last email to chat about. We actually got this like 10 minutes before we jumped on to record and I can't resist. I have to Congrats, do Scott. the fate ones. That's a fateful email, right? Yeah, I'm impressed. I'm like, damn, you just like got in, right? Yeah, right at the deadline, Rated right the deadline. And we always get that. So those 10 minute emails, like just know if your email gets read and we like rave about it like this, it's probably a 10-minute email. It was probably like right before. But we snuck you in, and this is from our friend Scott Dibbles and Bits that sent us a message saying, I want to express my thanks about exploring the possibly problematic nature of Loris and Rudley's relationship. Grooming is unfortunately not unheard of in the queer community, especially with age difference and social taboo on the relationship, which can lead to a lot of insecurity and inner turmoil, both of which Loras obviously has. I almost wonder if Loras saw Brienne as a potential rival, not for Renly's affections necessarily, but time and admiration. This kind of makes sense in terms of this. In Jamie 8, you guys discussed how Jamie was missing clues all around him. It's interesting in both the chapters we see Loras accusing Brienne of betraying the king they both love, when Jamie has antagonistic interactions with Osmond Kettleblack, who Jamie later discovers is a rival for the queen Jamie loves. I do like that. Very good call, Scott.
1: Yeah. Um, And yeah, thanks for sending in that email. Uh, Great, great last 10 minutes edition yeah uh, truly i I'm honestly like very impressed, but yes, thank you for sending this in, and I think that adds a lot of complexity, you know, especially as we dig into i really I really hope Loris isn't dead, you know, I really yeah. think that Loris is a character that I would love for us to dive into more, especially like not just as a foil for Jamie, but just like he has a lot in there that ties into the other ideas in this story, and I'm really hoping Loris made it.
0: I haven't really made my decision. You know what I mean? I'm like, what I think is going to happen to him in my head. There's a couple characters that I'm like, oh, this, 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 this outlines their end. And Loras, I'm just like, not sure, man. Not sure.
1: Yeah, I I find Loras very interesting. And obviously, I don't think it's going to go quite the way that it did in the show, right? They went a very different direction. And I like the idea that we're exploring more of that. Tyrell scheming. I, I don't know how much evidence there is for it. I haven't like read some of these theories in a couple of years. It's been a while since the uh I've read those, but fingers crossed, you know? Yeah. Just interesting character to me. But you know what else is interesting? All these chapters that we're gonna just also breeze right through as we get to Jamie's. <laughs> We have a lightning round starting off with Sansa 6. Sansa is forced to take on a hidden identity before heading to the Erie and is a guest at a lovely wedding in the fingers. And she even catches the bouquet.
0: <laughs> John 9. John may have returned to his job, but it is definitely a hostile work environment. Jano Slint has him put
1: in the ice cells. Tyrion 10. Speaking of cells. Tyrion wakes up and is taken from his cell to another day of damned lies against him. This time, very, very deep-cutting semi-lies from Shay. He requests a trial by combat and, well, it was promising, but, you know, it doesn't really go great. And as we noted last week, Oberyn dies. Daenerys 6. But first,
0: a commercial break. We're traveling- to marine, where Queen Daenerys must exile her most loyal bear while accepting a new knight into her service. Who could it be?
1: Arsten Whitebeard. Who'mst? <laughs> Never heard of him. And that brings us to Jamie Nine, a Storm of Swords. Jamie begins a new day as Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. Sick of the power struggle in King's Landing, he sends the Maid of Evenfall away with an oath and a sword and embraces the power of the quill.
0: It's going to be really hard for me not to break out into Hamilton, uh, Westeros, and American musical songs, the whole episode, and have you just go, uh-huh, I was there. Like, yeah. There's this, uh, this song. That is rewritten in the musical,
1: Eliana, that you saw. The Westeros musical that you saw. It's just like, she's like, it's going to be really hard to stop myself, so I won't. Because <laughs> it's a song.
0: <laughs> so anyways, there are two thoughts. One is, Westeros has its eyes on you. There's a song called History Has Its Eyes On You. Mm. And uh, there's another song where Hamilton sings, I wrote my way out. And it comes to mind now. Comes to mind. That was only for our Hamilton fans slash Westeros and American musical stands. I understand. I understand. But in the actual story, Tommen is signing a stack of papers being handed to him one by one by Kevin Lannister methodically. Two of them strip all lands and incomes from Edmure Tully and Brynden the Blackfish Tully from that podcast. Jamie watches the men that all vie for power. If this was power, why did it taste like tedium? he thinks. I have to break down this $7 word that George just gave us because I I thought it was an interesting use. I looked it up. He uses the word six times in the series, not counting fire and blood. I haven't looked at fire and blood, but like literally everything else. One time in Jaime, two times in Cersei chapters, once in a Danny chapter, in the World of Ice and Fire Ares 2 and Rogue Prince. The World of Ice and Fire is... A line actually about Lord Tywin, which is Lord Tywin continued on as Hand of the King, dealing with the daily tedium of the Seven Kingdoms while the king grew ever more erratic, violent and suspicious. So in my head, Cersei and Jaime both describe court as a tedium several times, and it's apparent they probably got that from their father. Obviously, court's described as tedious in many other synonyms, but an interesting dig on the word that was mostly surrounding them, especially considering Anne Grohl, the editor, has been often said to kind of police George, like, hey, why don't you use this instead? You've used it elsewhere.
1: I wonder. I wonder. I mean, it does make sense, right? It's the right word, I feel, for how Jamie feels, because he doesn't feel powerful watching this. He feels bored. And I do find that interesting that he calls that out. It feels to me like maybe a callback to how Robert felt when he was king. Like, I know that there have been actually a lot of really great analyses that liken uh, Cersei's progression in Feast to her becoming more like Robert, but I think that there's actually quite a bit that's similar between Jamie and Robert, especially in this chapter, and ties in well with uh, what we were talking about in Jamie's first chapter in Storm. Like, both Jamie and Robert... They were men who loved fighting. They were fighting men. It's And both of them say in more or less words quite explicitly, like, that they never felt so alive as when they were fighting or on the battlefield. And I think, for Robert, he says fighting or fucking. For Jamie, it's probably mostly fighting. And his best sex scene, again, is the one where he's fighting with Brienne. And Robert got to be the hero... Right? Whereas Jamie ends up the villain at the end of the rebellion. And I think that very much, of course, affects how they progress from there on out and what their disillusionment looks like. And I don't know, like, if this is about power, like, part of what makes it tedium is right now they feel very little power over their own lives, especially Robert. He's dead, but he felt that when he was alive. Like, he didn't have freedom. He's all like, Ned, let's just run away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. That's that was the power that he wanted—freedom—and I think that you see that very well in D- Danny's storyline, especially in dance, which uh, is crusting for her and Marine. That desire for freedom, and uh, as you pointed out, Tedium shows up in her s- story, and they in also. Dance. Yeah, they also both have this relationship with Cersei where they kind of just take things out on her and we'll get into that later. Well, and the mentions are
0: explicitly regarding how Robert used to feel about court in Cersei's chapters as well. So spot on. Uh, It seems like tedium is a very Lannister word. I think that's great. (laughs) Every muscle in Jamie's body is hurting from the training against Adam Marbrand the night before. He thought that would be his best test against his new disability. And the knowledge of how bad he was at fighting with his left hand is hurting him worse than the beating he got from Adam, which, spoiler alert, was really bad. Adam disarmed him three times.
1: Which, there's actually this really funny line... And I'm just going to call out, uh, because you had me thinking about hands and all that stuff uh, in previous chapters and some of the double meanings hand of jobs. words. Yes. In fact, that is it, what this is about. No. Um, <laughs> Jamie's like, it seems so simple, changing hands. It wasn't. And it makes me think again of that Office of the Hand and said, <laughs> and Tywin and Tyrion. Just like, in general. That's it. That's the thought. Hey, wait, it's wait, true. that is hand jobs. Wait,
0: shit, you're right. Yeah, the handjobs, and it's a—it's uh, it's like the defense against the dark arts role in Harry Potter. <laughs> like, you're right; it you actually know? is. I feel like that's like a fantasy given—you have to have a role that keeps being like killed and replaced and shit. The next grants that get given out during this false court are to Jenna Lannister and Eamon Frey, who are to receive lands and incomes, which we know to mean "quote unquote" River Run, but we'll talk about that more in a Feast for Crows, and probably later today. The following one legitimizes Ramsey Snow and names him uh, Ramsey Bolton. And the next one names Roose Bolton the Warden of the North, which basically it's a bullshit mummers show the entire time.
1: I mean, I, he deserves that name, you know, like Ramsay Bolton, as you said, avenged the Red Wedding. <laughs> I have been known to say this. <laughs> we're very, you know, we're very raw after all of this, but, um, you know, I think it's it is a bullshit members' show, and I think it's kind of funny that Kevin is so insistent on like reading aloud to Tom and like, yeah, that's what this paper is for. Please stamp it as though like Tom and gives a fuck. Right. Like about signing it. Tom is just like, yeah, whatever. This is fun. Tom is like, I saw a cloud today. <laughs> Actually, though. <no. laughs>
0: the oh next God, grant nice. that's given out is Ralph Spicer. He's given titles to Castamere and moved to become a lord. So Rolf Spicer is the uncle to Jane Westerling, I want to say. It's Sybil Spicer's brother. I love that in comparison to Blackwater, this is a very different Mummers show, right? It was bowing to Joffrey. Now it's bowing to the kid just stamping shit. And he hates turnips and he's chubby and cute. It's really easy to see the political strings behind all this. Obviously, this is a reread podcast. But it's also actually informing Jamie's path. Forward in A Feast for Crows in the next book as we finish A Storm of Swords with Jamie here. While he doesn't want to be here, he still ends up having to deal with all of this, right? Like Jamie right here is about to say, like, I wanna leave. Fuck you, Uncle. I'm out, peace. But he still ends up having to deal with each of these people that we just mentioned. Today he ends up starting the Arya plot. Ramsey's legitimized so it looks better when he marries Arya for the North, and Jamie sees off quote unquote Arya, which we will talk about. In Jamie 5, Jamie speaks with Jenna about River Run and about all the familial problems going on. And then, of course, the Spicer plot is basically unraveled in The Red Wedding as well. He deals with that later in Feast when Sybil explains her complicity in the murders of The Red Wedding, and we see Jane again.
1: Yeah, it all comes back, and this is such a great chapter that sets up the things that happen in Feast, and it just kills me that Tommen doesn't like Turnips. I um, love turnips. They're I know. very good and expensive, really. Yeah, I am like Tommen, you could replace all the riches. You know, you could make more Lannister money if you invested in turnips more. But anyway. What is
0: the currency exchange from bells <gasps> to dragons? Does anyone
1: know? Oh, someone please do this economic breakdown for us. <sighs> Jamie tuning back out. It's like, damn it, I should have gone to ill in pain. He can't tell anyone about it. Because if Adam gets so much as, like, just a bit too drunk and cracks a joke, it's going to ruin everything about the illusion of power that I have. And then I'd be a joke. But it's not quite as cruel as the joke that my father sent me.
0: Jamie moves on rather quickly and does not tell us what the gift that his father sent him, the cruel joke he sent him is. We will learn about it at the end of the chapter. We all know what it is. However, Jamie is framing it as like this awful, horrible thing, which it kind of is for him. Uh, The Westerlings all receive their pardons next. They're welcomed back into the Peace of Tommen. Jonos Bracken is pardoned, which he also visits, as we know. Lord Vance, Lord Mooton of Maidenpool as well. Jamie tells Kevin he can handle the rest on his own. Kevin tells him, go patch things up with Tywin, but Jaime refused, and he's like, yo, this is Tywin's fight. He isn't going to mend this if he keeps sending Jaime insulting gifts.
1: The gift was heartfelt. We thought that it might encourage you- To
0: grow a new hand? Jaime turned to Tommen. Though he had Joffrey's golden curls and green eyes, the new king shared little else with his late brother. He was inclined to plumpness, his face pink and round, and he even liked to read- he is still shy of nine. This son of mine, the boy is not the man. It would be seven years before tamen was ruling in his own right. Until then, the realm would remain firmly in the hands of his lord grandfather.
1: Ha! <laughs> See, it's funny. Things change hands easily, and also it doesn't remain in the hands of his lord grandfather until he's of age because Tywin dies in like a minute.
0: That was really good. good Thank job. you.
1: Full circle.
0: This is kind of a dick move, right? Because the one thing you loved was recently squandered and taken away from you. Hey, what was it called again, Jamie? Oh, okay. Well, here's a tool exactly for that. Like, mm, mm. like, how about maybe a hug and like, you did the best you could, son. That would probably be enough.
1: Yeah, Tywin, you know, gift. what if gift giving isn't the love language that we need right now? Ty win? More like tie lose. <laughs> for real, though. How? Did, why don't people say that more
0: often, though? I
1: don't That's know.
0: underrated. In A Game of Thrones, uttered one, we get really similar language from Robert, back to your Robert and Jamie parallels. John's service was the duty he owed his liege lord. I'm not ungrateful, Ned. You of all men ought to know that. But the son is not the father. A mere boy cannot hold the east. So this is regarding Robert Arryn. I thought this was an interesting language. I, I, I was like reading this chapter and I was like, what chapter was this language in? And I had to go read a handful of things that I thought it was in until I found it.
1: I didn't know where it was, but I, I also was like, that phrase sounds familiar. So thank you for finding it. It did. It
0: sounded so familiar, right? Every once in a while you hear one in your head and you're like, wait a damn minute. That's someone else's wording. But that was the only other way I found this phrase. Like I looked for a couple different variations in the text and the son is not the father uh, came up, and there's similar language here in a way, and about to go religious for a hot second, Faith of the seven, right It reminds me of the shield of the Trinity, a Christian visual symbol, it's like a triangle thing, it has the aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's um a diagram with twelve propositions on it, and two of these propositions are The son is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit.' And These are from the Athanasian Creed, which declare the father uncreated, the son uncreated, and the spirit is uncreated. All three are eternal without beginning, and they're not names for different parts of God, but one name for God, because three persons exist as one entity in God, which is kind of crazy science fiction when you really think about it. But I digress. Uh, it works here in a way, though, because the boy is not the man. He's not the father nor the God. The power that is happening through him... Him being Tommen, the boy, who is not the father or the Holy Spirit. Uh, The power he's getting, though, is the overall power of, like, Tywin or Kevin. An overall corrupt, like, flowing power through him. This is not his power anymore, right? He is not the man. And I thought that was an interesting
1: comparison. It is, and even more far removed, I mean, he's not the father. Like, the power is technically still coming from Robert Mm-hmm. As Circe has pointed out in a yes. few chapters ago. And they're like, Dude, today, you can't today, yeah. fuck this up. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, very interesting. Yeah, until then, though, Jamie's, like, gaining leave from Kevin. He orders Sir Merin Trant to guard his grace and later turn him to Mager's Holdfast, thinking the whole time that he cannot let him or the Kettleblacks or Blount learn of how weak he actually is. He makes for the stables finding some familiar faces steel shanks Walton steel shanks surrounded <laughs> by Northmen he's scurrying to prepare for the trip back and what? Lord Bolton <laughs> expects How them was that? well you know Chloe if you can appeal to the Hamilton fans I can appeal to the cats fans is that what that was is that what it was oh <laughs> Lord Bolton expects them in the north with their new prize. Arya Stark allegedly they call her a girl mounted on a horse, a grey horse, a grey girl. A wolf hmm. clasp pitting her cloak to her dress. Yeah, her eyes are big brown sad eyes,
0: and they speak differently than she does. She tells Jamie she remembers him from Winterfell, which not necessarily a lie. Uh, and I love that there's a focus on the eyes in this chapter, right? Not just in the Theon chapters. Even here, we're seeing she has big brown eyes, not the stark gray. Jamie thinks the girl looks older than Arya Stark would be, and he asks about her wedding. She says she's to wed Ramsay, as he's a Bolton now, not a Snow. She says he's brave and that she's happy, but Jamie thinks, why do you sound so frightened then? He turns to Steel Shanks after wishing her a happy marriage, asking if he received his coin. He did, Lannister's dad's blah blah blah. Wishes him good speed ahead for the trip and off he fucks. He looks at the girl once more, wondering if there's any resemblance, because the real Arya was likely buried in Flea Bottom in an unmarked grave.
1: With the wolf pin, um you know this, this chapter really hammers home. Something that I I think we might have discussed when we were reading the Theon chapters, but again, I don't know what we've talked about. I think we talked about this uh, quite a bit, but I don't remember what to what extent, but, you know, this Lannister ploy, like, has all the stamps of Ramsay all over it, and what he suggested to Theon, like, obviously, like, Roose is a big part of it, but, like, you know, here, maybe maybe the boy is the man in some ways, and... This chapter, from top to bottom, like with Tommen, right again, getting his power through Robert Baratheon, but not, uh, and then discussions of Joffrey, and then Jamie also hiding his inability to fight. You know, it's it's a lot about people masking who they are. I mean, obviously Tommen doesn't know, right? He's like, and neither did Joffrey, but it's all about that masquerade to keep power, and it really hammers home again. I think that comparison between Jane, again. With the Miller's boys that Theon kills, I'm not one hundred percent sure how much of this we discussed in that or the Patreon episodes, but like, you know, again, it's that lower class slipping into the identities of the nobility and paying their price. And like,
0: like, why is Jane not as important as Arya? Exactly. It, and I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, they're monsters, and you're it, just gonna let it go because it's easy.
1: It's yeah, easy. Just it's it easier. Go. He lets it go. It's the same as again. One more time, we could have done this after the Theon chapters because, like, there's a complicitness that both Theon and Jamie exhibit in these crimes. Like, Jamie knows what's happening and that there's a switch going on. And maybe, sure, he doesn't know how terrible Ramsay is. It seems like it's not something that everyone knows that, for the most part, especially when they're not yeah, in the north. But the at the south. same time. He can see that there's fear in her eyes. And, like, Theon does the same thing, too, right? It's not a coincidence that both of them, in a way, very much owe this big debt to Bran. And Jamie lets Jane go off on her torture anyway, as Theon executes the Millers' boys for his plot. And, like, yes, of course, this chapter is absolutely pivotal. It's many ways a turning point, and the language is is showing that, that, like, just a few pages before that happens, Jamie's thinking, like, about how to be better. He lets this happen to Jane, knowing and, like, seeing the fear in her eyes. Like, where's that chivalry for maids in distress that yeah. he's supposed to exhibit? Why is the attitude better her than Arya? I don't know if he's even that, if he even thinks
0: that. He didn't say it, like, but you know what I
1: mean? Like, why is
0: that the attitude in general? Like, that's how it, it feels.
1: It, it is actually, and the language later on kind of says that as he's, he's talking to Brienne, and even Brienne doesn't seem to really... Bad an eyelash which is surprising yeah. yeah even brienne's like whatever and it might just be an oversight but like it
0: also feels really fleeting like i don't know why it's so pivotal and important in theon's arc that theon like abandons all of his fear just to help this person that's suffering just as much as he is if not like shittier yeah. you know on a more intimate intimate level i like, guess both Both horrible acts of sexual violence and violence against both of them are horrible. But like she, she's married into it.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if he thinks better her than Arya. Same for Brienne, because then it's not about their personal honor, right? They're like better her than Arya, because then I can. I'm not failing my oath to Catelyn Stark.
0: It is self serving still. Yeah. I don't know. I know what we're supposed to think about it. Not what we're supposed... You know what I mean? Like, I get... Yeah. I get it. It just, like, is still something that is a bummer to me because... Yeah. Especially though we get kind of a... Not a redemption on that. Let's not throw the R word out right now, but... (laughs) We get kind of a better version of that with Brienne with the kids later, you know?
1: I think it's... Yeah. I think it's less, like... This isn't a big part of Jamie's storyline of course. This is like a fleeting no. thing that's meant to be like an easter egg for later on when it comes up in dance, mm-hmm. right? But at the same time it just it sucks for Jane, of course, and like it sucks cuz we know. It sucks cuz we know and also like I, again, I acknowledge that in universe a lot of the people in Westeros including those especially those in the south aren't as aware of the politics and the, how what Ramsay Snow is like, obviously. So, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. They're like, I don't know. I guess that boy has the Bolton last name now. So.
0: Well, he surveys a lingering dry pool of blood on the ground from the trial that just happened, where Gregor had killed an innocent stable boy. Jamie told the King's Guard to keep the crowd out of the way, but Boros Blount had lost sight of it. Fucking up. Shadow Typical Fox. fucking up.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Gregor was the only one left to pay for it, and pay for it he was doing Pycelle was tending to his wounds, but everybody could hear the howls throughout the night. Pycelle had told the council the flesh just kept oozing pus. The mm. maggots wouldn't even touch him. His veins have turned black. The leeches that he puts on him all die. It's not looking too hot for him, right? This is we an need intense a- pimple
1: popping video. Tyburn
0: needs to go downstairs, that's for sure. For sure. Yeah. Paisal wants to know what poison Oberyn used, and he's all like, Tywin, we must detain these Dornish men. And Tywin's like, no, that would make matters worse if we held them, which is, you know, kind of a similar plan Doran has with Balin, right?
1: Mm, actually, now, let yes, say it, out it loud. is.
0: Their thoughts aren't much different. Like, in the long run, it's just Doran doesn't take as much action. Doesn't have the power or time to so far.
1: Doesn't have the stomach for... For it, right? Yeah. He's not as uh, well-versed in mass murder as Tywin is. He thinks about it, but he's like, mm, I'll save that plan for another day. He's like, interesting idea. Interesting. Tywin uh, commands Pycelle, keep Gregor alive. King's justice must kill him, not a poison blade. So they chat about Stannis. I thought this was a great conversation
0: they have. Tywin starts off You're aware, Lord Vary, sent fishermen in the waters around Dragonstone. They report only a token force remains to defend the island. The Lycene
1: are gone from the bay, and the great part of Lord Stannis' strength with them. Well and good, announced Pycelle. Let Stannis rot in the lease, I say. We are well rid of the man and his ambitions.
0: Did you turn into an utter fool when Tyrion shaved your beard? This is Stannis Baratheon. The man will fight to the bitter end and then some. If he's gone, it can only mean he intends to resume the war. Most likely, he will land at Storm's End and try and rouse the Stormlords. If so, he's finished, but a bolder man might roll the dice for Dorne. If he should win Sunspear to his cause, he might prolong this war for years, so we will not offend the Martells any further for any reason. The Dornishmen are free to go. You will heal, Sir Gregor. This is such a great passage. It's so juicy because Tywin was so mm-hmm. close. Like even his mention of Varys and Dragonstone was close. If you change the words here to Aegon and Jon Khan's crew, this is what we actually get. Most likely he will land at Storm's End and try and rouse the Stormlords. If so, he's finished. Just kidding. Aegon's doing that, but we know he's not finished because a boulder man might roll the dice for Dorne. If he should win Sunspear to his cause, he might prolong this war for years. So Tywin has the right of it. Dorne's swords are untouched. Besides, like the veil, they're the only untouched swords. And where he's wrong is that Aegon not only takes the Stormlands, making good on the connections that have been very much so ignored by both Stannis, intent on his throne, and Renly, corrupted by the flowers, but then Aegon makes common cause with Dorne. And while it's not yet canon that seals the war deal with Aegon. I mean, they wouldn't be in the next books if she didn't. So anyways, this is just huge foreshadowing for Griff's arrival in the plot to sew all this shit up.
1: And they are bolder men. Yeah, bolder men. and Would do that. Also, one last thing, because I will not stop. There's (laughs) a quip in here. Once more, of Lord uh, Jamie's like, oh, Lord Tywin could command even the stranger, you know, because of him like, delaying Gregor's death, but it's funny. It's funny because Tywin doesn't and he dies. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Jamie now climbs the steps of the White Sword Tower. Here's Boros' snores. Balin's cell is shut because he's guarding Tommen, and it's quiet otherwise, and he's ready to rest, but wow, we have a visitor. It's Cersei, looking like not just a snack, but a whole meal.
0: <laughs> I thought this was just a gorgeous intro mm-hmm. to what she looked like here. Everyone close your eyes. Get, you know, comfy. Get Stretch your shoulders out. You know, everyone good? You ready? She stood beside the open window, looking over the curtain walls and out to sea. The bay wind swirled around her, flattening her gown against her body in a way that quickened Jamie's pulse. It was white, that gown, like the hangings on the wall and the draperies on his bed. Swirls of tiny emeralds brightened the ends of her wide sleeves and spiraled down her bodice. Larger emeralds were sat in the golden spiderweb that bound her golden hair. The gown was cut low to bare her shoulders and the tops of her breasts. She's so beautiful. He wanted nothing more than to take her in his arms.
1: Whew. She's okay. got style. You cannot oh, say that Cersei her. Lannister does not have style. Yeah, say what you want, Prime Minister. Can't deny <laughs> Dumbledore's got style. Um, think of the Dumbledore comics. You know the <laughs> yeah, the little the little ones. Anyway, yeah. something interesting
0: here is how he associates both Cersei and the Brienne with the sea, but differently. Right in the last chapter, in this chapter, he associated. The cell, getting his cell looking out over the sea as like a new freedom, right? Like maybe he'd like the sea, he said in Jamie 8. And here he looks out of his window and he sees Cersei against the sea, right? But Mm -hmm. by the end of the chapter in this chapter and later, and especially when he sails past Tarth, he thinks of Brienne when he sees the sea. Right? Very, very interesting. Very interesting (laughs) changes happening of hands. Changing of hands happening here.
1: And her view was of the sea during the the trial. Mm Mm-hmm. So I want to bring
0: back some fashion hour. It has been a while. How could we not? Oh, my God. This outfit is like deck to the nines. This is like Met Gala 2019 (laughs) or 2018. Or twenty seventeen. It depends on what year you're really going to the Met Gala, I guess. But Cersei was there, so Cersei has this spider web of gold in her hair, and I love how it's described when we think of hairnets right now, because as we know with Sansa, very recently with hairnets, um, it's kind of like symbolic of being trapped, right? Mm. Spider web in your hair, a spider web of gold. Cersei is another person wearing a hairnet with an agenda around that hairnet, and. As we just discussed a little bit ago, the Lannisters have been very much manipulated by Varys, the spider. That's one way to think about it. It's likely that Cersei's downfall does lie in Varys's eight hands that he's playing, so to speak. And it's also dressed as a total trapping of power. All that glitters is not gold, as you and I have explored many times, and power being what has trapped Cersei and what destroys her as well as nourishes her. And it goes without saying that while, yes, this symbolizes Cersei being trapped beneath that power, she is also using this hairnet as part of a trap with Jaime to ensnare him. The emeralds that play with her eyes so well, her finest gown, her bare shoulders, her hair within this golden hairnet, uh, Jaime is definitely caught within her spider web.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I love how you're exploring all those different layers of that there. With Cersei's outfit, I think another thing is, you know, she's dressed in white for the most part, and I, she's very much, we've seen Cersei do this right before, evoke the colors of innocence. She did it during the Blackwater, if I'm not mistaken, and though everyone, including Jamie, knows that she's fucking not, like, duh. But she's doing it right here to I- elicit Jamie's sympathies towards the helpless. She knows that. He likes playing the role of the knight, even though he's so disillusioned on it. And she's going to call him out on it in a bit.
0: Yeah, and in a way, she's doing this thing with her white innocence dress, right? Uh, With that manipulating, she's using it Mm -hmm. very much so to manipulate him with that white dress. But also, it's mirroring his Kingsguard outfit. Uh, We're going to talk about the ways that Cersei manipulates Jaime via knighthood. And he's wearing white all the time, so she's also coming, shaking this white flag, olive branch. Her outfit is saying that she sympathizes with his position as the Lord Commander now, you know. But the gold and the green give away the truth behind Cersei's real reason she's there. The greed, the Lannister gold, the green.
1: Yeah. All against that white backdrop. Yeah. And turns out part of why she's here, right, is Cersei's upset because Tywin wants her off. Any of the crown affairs on the council, and asks Jamie to please talk to him. And Jamie's like, "I talk to Tywin every single day." And she's like, "Shut the fuck up! You know that's not what I meant,
0: <laughs> all right?"
1: And seriously, so Tom's explained why Tywin's acting the way that he's acting. And Jamie finishes her sentence. He's like, "Yeah, duh. Tywin wants to force me to leave the Kingsguard and go back home to Casterly Rock." And she's like, "You know, I too am being forced back to Casterly Rock. Maybe like this wouldn't be so bad. We can go back together." And oh Jamie's God. like. I'm not falling for that again. Last time I tried to do that, we ended up <laughs> separated, and I ended up as a king's guard. JK, that's uh not what he's saying explicitly, but that's the backdrop. Cersei's all yeah. like, and Tywin's taking Tommen from me! Tommen is my son, not Tywin's. Jamie reminds
0: her, Tommen's the king. This is what you did, what you married. And she reminds him, he's a boy who just had to watch his brother die at the same exact job. And she's upset because, of course, they're forcing him to wed Marjorie again, twice his age, twice a widow now.
1: How dare she uh, be a widow? But actually, uh, in one way, really, truly, as we discussed, maybe how dare she be a widow? But, anyways, um, I do like this line about Cersei acting like it's about Tommen, but it's really about her and her trauma. To read it aloud, like, she was, he is a boy, a frightened little boy who saw his brother murdered at his own wedding. And now they're telling him that he must marry. And, you know, actually, it's Cersei the one who's terrified, like, about seeing Joffrey murdered at his own wedding, not Tommen. And she's the one who's mad because she actually, as we know later, and as we know from other previous chapters, She's mad because she's the one being forced to marry. Not that Tommen is. Mm Because Tommen's like, whatever. Cool. New friends? Yeah. Fuck
0: turnips? (laughs) (laughs) Back to Cersei's prophecy. Uh, it, It does make sense here, right? Because with no Cersei point of view, we don't realize this right now. But when we get to Feast for Crows, Cersei has to be totally paranoid at this exact second and terrified. Joffrey just died, like, that prophecy, gold shall be their shroud, they're next, then her.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think, rereading this, that prophecy really comes forth, especially when she talks about how powerless she felt when she was watching Joff die, and... Mm-hmm. I don't love the prophecy, but I know, I know it makes sense here. Anyway.
0: Yeah. It works. It works in places. Yeah. I agree that it's kind of a, a kitschy device When sometimes can grow unruly, but at least it's rooted. Jamie obviously doesn't agree. He's like, there's really no harm in it. Tommen's lonely and Cersei's super taken aback. She's like, it's your son. And he's like, um, okay, but I've never been allowed to ever say that before. Like, I've never been allowed to feel
1: like it's my son. I had to give him up to that drunken lecher of a king. Yeah, not that Robert was allowed to do it either. And that's another thing kind of the same between them, right? Not being allowed to... Be part of the raising of Joffrey and, you know, the, the other kids. Yeah. And he
0: thinks about
1: Robert's death and how even that
0: leaves a bitter taste in his mouth because he thinks it should have been him who killed him, not Cersei. Fuck you, first off. Let her, <laughs> let her kill her husband, okay? Let Carol live. Let Carol <laughs> Baskin live. They, we get this passage between the two, and Jamie tells her, I only wish he died at my hands. And he thinks when I still had the two of them. If I'd let slaying become a habit, as he liked to say, I could have taken you as my wife for all the world to see. I'm not ashamed of loving you, only of the
1: things I've done to hide it, that boy at Winterfell. Did I tell you to throw him out the window? If you'd gone hunting, as mm. I begged you, nothing would have happened. But no, you had to have me. You could not wait until we returned to the city. I'd waited long
0: enough. I hated watching Robert stumble to your bed every night, always wondering if maybe this night he'd decide to claim his rights as husband. Jamie then suddenly remembered something else that had troubled him about Winterfell. (sighs) Just to, you know, sidebar. We told all of you. You guys didn't listen to us, but Jamie did that of his own volition. Yeah. If last chapter was anything to, like, explain it, Cersei didn't want it. She wanted shit. She wanted shit to get done. That's why she offered it up. But, like,
1: Jamie did that. Jamie was, like, angry and just pushed him out. Yeah, and I mean, he says as much in his interiority in the first Jamie chapter. Something that really pops out
0: here is how upset Jamie was about Casterly Rock and about how he's like, well, I would have to leave all this and go home, Cersei. Cersei was like, hmm, that's nice anyways, and skips right over it. And this is like a big defining moment that puts a line between the two of these people. Like these are, their love is very different to both of them. Cersei immediately just thought, well, you'll be with me. You'll be fine. What you need doesn't matter, Jamie. And in Winterfell, we get kind of this framing of how it was for them. And it's very similar now for Jamie all this time dating Cersei has been just, like, him banging her in that tower. Like, he thought he was having glorious romantic golden incest sex with his waifu in Eddard Stark's household, basically. Like, it was a glorious golden fuck you to Ned, right? But Cersei has never wanted any of it. Cersei's never cared. She just never has.
1: Yeah, she's cared about it to the extent that, like, it's a means to an end, as we see Mm -hmm. In many ways, and Jamie as an extension of herself, uh, but it doesn't truly, you know, bring her pleasure in the way that Jamie seems to think it does for her.
0: Yeah, I mean, soon she's about to straight up be like, oh, you thought all of this was a real thing? Like, you knew this could never happen, right? Like, you knew this since we were little, it couldn't happen like that.
1: Yeah, which, I mean, yeah. It's true. True,
0: but like, also, why'd you lead me on for 25 years, sis? (laughs) Jamie remembers something that doesn't have to do with Cersei's boobies. He remembers Catelyn being convinced that the Lannisters tried to kill Bran with a cat spa, and he brings it up, Cersei dismisses it, and she's like, Tyrion asked about that as well. And Jamie says, no, I saw Catelyn's scars. It was a real dagger, and Cersei shuts him down. She says, yes, I hoped the boy would die. So did you. Even Robert thought that would have been for the best. We kill our horses when they break a leg and our dogs when they go blind, but we are too weak to give the same mercy to crippled children, he told me. Jamie then asks if she was alone when Robert had said this. Kind of alarmed by this. And Cersei mocks him, asking if he thinks Marcella sent the man with the dagger, but he cuts to the chase. Not Marcella, Joffrey. And this is... A soft reveal, right? Uh, of who sent the cat's paw, who sent the cat's paw dagger after Bran. This is basically it.
1: Yeah, and the other setup. Right, it's also very subtle, right? It's subtle. Mm-hmm. A subtle. And knife. That's why it's like, oh wow, amazing. It actually <laughs> is. It is, uh, and that's that's a thing, right? It also comes up in Tyrion's chapter you piece the things together and it's like a child hungry for a pat on the head from that sot you let him believe was his father. He had an uncomfortable thought. Tyrion almost died because of this bloody dagger. If he knew the whole thing was Joffrey's work, that might be why. And he's like, Oh, maybe Tyrion did try to kill Joffrey. And it's interesting because again, Cersei is very much like Joffrey in this, in many ways too hungry for a pat on the head from their father. I mean, like, all of the Lannister siblings are quite like this, and by that I mean the first generation of Lannister siblings, not the second. But at the same time, you know, they're also trying to wrest themselves free of him. It, it's like, that's why they don't feel like they have any actual power. They're like, yeah, I guess we do, and that we're royals, but not really? Yeah, they're fake royals, absolutely. Tywin's there controlling them but you know it's great he's not gonna for much longer so congratulations everyone. Cersei doesn't care about Tyrion
0: she says he can take his reasons to hell with him and comes back to Joffrey's death once more telling Jaime about how Joff fought and the terror in his eyes and how there was nothing she could do to save him she says Tyrion sent Marcella to Dorne Joff is dead because of Tyrion and Tywin's all I have left and then she begs him To leave the king's guard, But he refuses. She fights back tears and says, Jamie, you're my shining knight. You cannot abandon me when I need you most. He's stealing my son, sending me away. And unless you stop him, father's going to force me to wed again. A, that's obviously the big, like, that's how you get his attention, right? As we've learned. Mm -hmm, Uh, He fought mm -hmm. with Tywin about it already. That's really what his big fight and his uh, estrangement from Tywin has been about in the end. And... In this, you kind of get this picture. She opens it with Jamie. You're my shining knight, and Jamie's been living up to Cersei's idea of what a shining knight is for years. And now, as of the last end of the chapter, he's been choosing to live up to his own version of a knight, which might not be fully formed yet, but
1: uh, he- he's working on it. Yeah, he's figuring it out. And like, I don- I don't think that's a sidebar because like, it's not just about Jamie living up to it, right? Uh, in terms of what Cersei thinks a knight as you said, like a knight is. But Cersei is also trying to manipulate and use what she knows she knows that Jamie has always in a way wanted to be a knight. Like how he sees his role towards her. Like that that Lancelot, right? Jealous of Robert, protecting his queen. Uh you know, of course not so much concerned about his sister's consent or lack thereof when it comes to being jealous of Robert, even though the phrasing is ambiguous uh, when said aloud sure. here. Yeah, uh, but as we know from his first chapter in The Storm of Swords again, then Cersei's appealing to Jamie's aspirations as a knight here. and She's framing herself as that helpless damsel distress, all in white, and her son being stolen and herself as well. I do, I do think she is very distressed, though. She is about being forced to wed again. I mean, we saw how great her first marriage went, and by that I mean terrible. But we also see what happens when
0: he doesn't say yes.
1: Yeah. We're getting there. Yeah. Because right now, Jamie's like, wait, to whom? And she's like, I don't know. It doesn't fucking matter. Jamie's, you're the only one I want in my bed. But he's totally
0: fed up. He tells her... Well, tell Tywin all that. And she refuses. And she's like, you're talking madness. We'd be ripped apart like when we were younger. We'd lose the throne. And he begins to say the Targaryens. But she cuts him off. And she's like, we're not Targaryens. And yeah, he, they're not. <laughs> they're not. They're absolutely not. He scornfully tells her to be quiet because she'll wake his brothers. And she begins to beg once more. And she starts to unlace his pants pretty pathetically, telling him, She'll prove to him she wants him
1: and nothing's changed. It has. Spoiler alert. He refuses to bang her, though, in the White Sword Tower and, in quotes, much less in the Lord Commander's chambers. And, I mean, that makes sense because he's all like, oh, this place. And, you know. I wonder if we're going to see some sort of version of this with Jon and
0: Danny in Winterfell ever, maybe? With, like, the Lord's chambers or something? Just a thought. Just bullshitting. But maybe think about it.
1: In the the Night's Watch or in Winterfell,
0: either. I mean, either in the Lord's chambers in Winterfell or in the Commander's chambers. I don't. I doubt it at the Night's Watch. I doubt that he'll be there still. Uh, yeah. Wonder if we yeah. see something like that though. I could see something happen there. She yeah. she claims that this is no different than the Sept having sex in the Sept. It is, uh, and starts to try to blow him again, and he pushes her away with his stump, forcing himself to stand. Good, good job though to him. Like a plus, you gotta—that's some self-control. Honestly, I mean your dick's out, but <laughs> I'm just saying. Like, wow, it's already out. You know what I mean?
1: Hmm. Um, and she, she points that out later on. She's
0: like, dick's still out, buddy.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: you're left with your cock in your hand." The difference here, not hand. Yeah. <laughs> the difference here is that Cersei doesn't have faith. In things, right? She's never held real power, but power is what she believes in. She doesn't really believe in the Seven like she did maybe when she was like 11 or 12. The only member of the Seven Cersei actually fears is the stranger. Failure. Death. Uh, We get this line in Cersei 1, A Feast for Crows, where she's watching Sir Osmond's lantern and there's a moth within it. She thinks she could still hear the moth fluttering wildly inside his lantern Die, the queen thought at it, in irritation. Fly into the flame and be done with it. And that's kind of like how Cersei is, right? Like, that's her general disposition. That's just the stuff she thinks about. Uh, she's not holy. She thinks Mother's Day and Maiden's Day and all that bullshit is just bullshit. Jaime believes in the King's Guard now, right? Like, he—this is disrespectful to his religion. This is his religion— this is his seven. Yeah. Um, the, it's broken, it's empty, but he's trying to refill his religion. These are his seven gods. These knights are his seven gods.
1: Yeah, that idea of honor and chivalry and trying to maybe live up to something. Absolutely. He's clinging to it before he burns out, you know? Yeah, he lost. And I think that's an interesting way of framing it because then it becomes an arc in which it's it's him losing faith, right? Mm-hmm. And then coming back into the religion. Yeah. Yeah. But of, uh, as you said, the King's Guard. the language here really struck me, uh, because it says, Jamie pushed her away with the stump of his right hand. No, not here. I said, he forced himself to stand for an instant. He could see confusion in her bright green eyes and fear as no. well. Then rage replaced it. And as I read that and it- it's actually kind of very heartbreaking to me, especially mm-hmm. in the context, again, of the sept scene a few chapters ago. Because, like, yeah, even though Cersei is very much framed as manipulative, and she is, like, not even framing, she is, because, like, Cersei can say no, not here, same as Jamie does, because she's afraid of maybe getting caught, or, like, of course, her son is right there, his dead body, whatever, but she can't just make it stop, Mm -hmm. same as she couldn't with Robert, like, and that's why she rages and asks, you know, if they took Jamie's hand or manhood, because as you said, like, she's very, she worships power, she envies the power that Robert and Jamie have been able to have over her as a woman, that she can say no... But that doesn't mean it's going to be honored. Like, Jamie's still stronger than her, as Robert was. And again, as we saw in that scene, like, kind of reduces her to her body and, like, that idea of, like, oh, we can just have more kids. And then the object for their projections and their self actualizations and idealizations that, in her pers, and, like, in her perspective, that's part of why she ages, right? Like, because masculinity and power, that's how she lashes out. They're very much intertwined with each other and sexuality, and masculinity, power, and sexuality. And, I think that really comes through when Jamie uses the same language of no, not here, as Cersei mm-hmm. did in the Sept, and then he sees confusion and fear in her eyes as he stands up because, you know, fear, she's, she's fearful because when Robert was displeased, there was a risk that Robert would hit Cersei. It didn't happen often, as he told Ned, but it still did happen, exerting his physical power over her. And Jamie has the power to be able to say no. He has the physical power to shove her away, to stand up, even if he can't fight without his sword hand, but no one knows that yet. And like, for Cersei, I don't know, how often has she had that kind of power? That's why she's pleading with Jamie and using the power that she thinks she has through her sexuality uh, to help her be able to have a no that means something to another man towards their father. And that's why she rages because she realizes once more how powerless she is again, as she was powerless when Joffrey died.
0: And also, it's like, she spent so much time just, like, pushing it at them because she's supposed to. You know what I mean? Like, last week, she was like, no, okay, fine, I guess have sex. But then it's like, what, now you don't fucking want it?
1: Yeah. Like,
0: this is all I'm worth to you people, so now you don't fucking want it?
1: And it it's scary because then, you know, on one hand, she's like, I don't want to be married off, but on the other hand, wh- what is her place, like, power mm-hmm. if that isn't something she can use. And that's, I think, a big part of Cersei's dance and feast storylines when we eventually get to her chapters.
0: Yeah, especially because when this turns into a no, and this turns into a, a total like rejection is really what happens here, too. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot... I don't think I really thought of anything for now for it, but she... Definitely like just splits and there's a snap and the rejection hits and she also just is just immediately like disconnect, cold, like don't give any emotion, like he's
1: not worth it, goodbye kind of feeling going on here. She um, becomes quite verbally abusive. I mean, they're it, yeah, that's why it's such a toxic relationship. Cold, blunt, just like, fuck
0: you, um, tearing him down, emasculating him as much as she can, making him yeah. feel nothing like what she feels right now. She goes off, she's like, you, you know what, I was a fool to even try. You lack the courage to avenge Joffrey. Why would you even protect Tommen, specifically from Tyrion? And Jamie doesn't think that Tyrion did it, of course, and Cersei does, and she realizes it, and she says, you great golden fool. He's lied to you a thousand times, and so have I.
1: Hmm. Yeah. When people tell you that they
0: are, Jamie. You need to listen.
1: Tyrion's gonna tell him, I guess, in his chapter.
0: For all I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and she
0: gets even meaner, though, right? Like, as she goes, she says, well, Illyn's gonna have Tyrion's head soon, and maybe I'll give it as a keepsake to you, as it rots. And, like, oh, Joffrey is definitely also Cersei's Yeah, points were just made, wow. Uh, same,
1: same offers, same gift yeah. ideas. Yeah, who, chicken or the egg?
0: Jamie tells her that she's angering him, and she responds very much so in unkind. Oh, an angry cripple. How terrifying. She laughed. A pity Lord Tywin Lannister never had a son. I could have been the heir he wanted, but I lacked the cock. And speaking of such, best tuck yours away, brother. It looks rather sad and small, hanging from your breeches like that.
1: Yeah. Ugh. These are, like, intense scenes. I feel like a lot of people focus on the latter half of this, but these are intense. Like, we start to see here more explicitly something that, again, we brought up in that sept scene. Like, But also in some of the other scenes, right? But for Cersei to bring up that Jaime didn't avenge Joffrey's death by killing Tyrion, because that's what she explicitly asked for in the sept scene mm-hmm. after that. And then ja- Cersei you know, coming to Jamie, and we knew that she was avoiding him, and the most previous chapter, right? Mm-hmm. After that. It's it's part of her modus operandi that okay, sexual act, and I ask for things, I weave it all together. And this time she's asking, like, help me leave Escape Marriage and Steal Tom away to Casterly really Rock. And then so in that frustration, right, she lashes out and attacks his manhood because the one thing, like her sexuality that she thought was her power and that could make her wishes reality. Like, it isn't working here as it used to on Jamie. And yet, even though she doesn't have power, Jamie still does get to have autonomy because, you know, yes, he does have a cock. He still gets to choose whether he wants to be in the King's Guard mm-hmm. or if he wants to go back to Casterly Rock. He gets to make his choice. And I, I think that's quite at the forefront of the story, especially with the last sentence of it, of this chapter.
0: Yeah. So Cersei leaves him, and he feels an ache deep within his fingers. We get a classic Jaime line. I've lost a hand, a father, a son, a sister, and a lover, and soon enough I'll lose a brother. And yet they keep telling me how Lannister won this war. Hmm. He heads downstairs, commanding Boros to tell Loras that he's ready to see her again. And a few hours pass until Loras and Brienne arrive. He waves them closer. What
1: been doing? Why would it take so long? I know Jamie asked this, but...
0: I, he, like, complains about it, too. He's like, I wonder if Boros just, like, took side trips. Maybe Boros was shitting his brains out. Maybe he's been poisoned for a whole book, dude. We don't true. know. He waves them closer. He's reading the Book of Brothers, a little light reading, on his chair. He awaits Loris's verdict on Brienne. Loras is like, I don't know, mate. I still don't know, but maybe Stannis could have been the true perpetrator. Jamie tells them the news of Courtney Penrose dying strangely as well. And Brienne is sad for Courtney. She says he was a good man. But Jamie says he was stubborn. He says, one day he stood square in the way of the King of Dragonstone. The next he leapt from a tower. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty suspicious. Yeah, it. It's definitely suspicious. Me and poor Quentin from Nauticast have actually been discussing this. And recently it was specifically mentioned the big shadow of Beleri the Dread come again over Aegon and King's Landing as, you know, basically Daenerys Mm. on uh, Drogon. And Stannis' shadow killing Courtney is kind of the same appearance in this passage.
1: Interesting. Mm -hmm. Especially because they're calling him King of Dragonstone, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely.
1: I actually thought of something else here, and I was thinking of you when I was reading this, right? That imagery of Courtney and the rumors of him leaping from a tower, it reminds me of people like Jahara and Helena, and the other women who allegedly jumped from towers. And people are like, yeah, they totally jumped. And I'm just like, interesting that people are like, oh, it's weird that that man did it. Maybe it was murder. It was murder. I mean, it was murder, right? We, we were all there. But, like, yes. when it's women, they're like, oh, no, she was just real sad. Yeah, oh, darn, a, a goes another baby maker. Yeah. We'll
0: find a new one, in the words of Walter Frey. Uh, he tells Loris, let's circle back to all this later, dismisses him. And the next thing is the matter at hand, which is Brienne, dressed once more in woman's garb, this time much better fitting, He thinks she looks ugly and awkward at first, but then he realizes and tells her, it goes well with your eyes, the blue of the dress. It's a good color on you. In fact, he thinks that her eyes are astonishing.
1: And I just want to point out that my analysis on Brienne's undertones is canon from this. And also, uh, I think it's Bidonica, right, on Twitter, has shown me undertones that do work for Dario with a yellow outfit. So Mm -hmm. truly, it all comes down. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Jamie had sent a septa septa Denise. Yo, dude, that's Denise.
0: (laughs) Denise.
1: Oh, I was thinking of a medieval fun time world land where they see Marys. Oh, that's right. love that. Oh yeah. Yo, dude, that's Denise. Anyways, to pad the bodice out and shave it for her, she lingers at the door and tells him, "Oh, you look different." And he gives us a classic line. Yes, a very classic line. Close
0: the door and come here. Uh, that line was named after the podcast, Close the Door and Come Here, the source material for the books for Brienne and Jamie.
1: And over the years, you know, they've done a lot of really uh, in-depth and great work on analyzing Jamie and Brienne's relationship.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: I would say, like, just
0: friends, don't just send a septa to pad your bodies out and shape it so you look nice. It's like, that's yeah. Cinderella, dude. Best friends
1: don't send you a makeover sequence. i watched. This was Princess Diaries. I've watched. Yeah, all what that. There's also what is the other one? The Princess the one the, Brienne
0: of Genova.
1: Yeah, it's like that, or uh, she's all that, or literally every other thing ever. Oh um, I'm doing the shot now. Are you ready? Oh, okay. Chloe's ready to get sad. I've already finished my drink. <laughs> And so Brian's like, oh, thank you. Uh, you look nice, too. And compliments his snowy cloak. And then he shuts her down, being self-deprecating, being like, I don't know how to take compliments. Uh, I'm going to soil it enough soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> big mood. Big mood, Jamie. Ugh. Brienne asks him what he meant when he s- was talking about Loris and King Brendley, And did you mean it when you said that I had honor Jamie? Aww. That's what every girl wants to hear.
0: Yeah, he reminds her, whoa, I'm a kingslayer. Me thinking someone has honor is hypocritical at best. He breaks the news about Arya going north, but he totally buries the lead. And Brienne immediately begins to read him the riot act about Catelyn's oath. And he's like, uh, that was the oath that started with a sword pointed at me. Just putting it out there. He then tells her he couldn't have given her the daughters back anyways because they're both gone and this is where the lead got buried. Yes, Arya as well, because that was not Arya that he just saw. He says he wanted to tell her before she took off stupidly and bravely after the girl and got killed for no good reason. Also because he loves her, but he doesn't say it out loud. Or in his he head, but we know. I
1: mean. Yeah. Subtext. Subtext. Also, you're right, he does bury the lead, and it's like, he just did that to troll her just a bit.
0: Yeah, it's really funny, because this whole conversation, he's very mad at her, like, being all, oh, and now she's going to be a stupid wench again. But, like, she's being a stupid wench because of how you speak to her, Jamie, and you know that she's going to be, and you still do it. Hmm. What is that called?
1: Sex. (laughs) (sighs) <sighs> not here in the white sword tower, Jamie, my God can't just I be mean, doing makeover sequences in the fucking sword tower. Christ where else
0: is he supposed to have sex with another fellow descendant of Dunk?
1: That's true. And I bet like, instead of, you know, you know how the scene, the classic scene is like, she comes down the staircase yes. here. It's her going up the staircase. Is this a subversion of tropes
0: with like lucky by Britney Spears in the background? Oh my God. Um, no, that's a sad line. song. We get this line, and he says, you're not bad with a sword, but you're not good enough to take on 200 men. Again, he loves her. But this is like, I felt like there was some others foreshadowing here. You're not good enough to take on 200 men. And also some End of a Feast for Crows foreshadowing, not with 200 men, but with Biter, right? Yeah, like, I
1: don't know, 15? 15 Mm -hmm. men? Not quite 20. 20? (laughs) It didn't seem like there were 20. I thought about it. I did. Fewer than 20. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I felt the same. Brienne is weary of
0: Bolton realizing he's been given false coin here. And I loved this wordplay because when you think about it, she's weary about Bolton being paid false coin with
1: Arya. But Arya is currently paying with coin elsewhere. Yes, she is, and it's something that you kind of see in the way that women are described as they're passed off into marriage in a in a Song of Ice and Fire. Like I think that there's quite a bit of that wordplay, right? We have yeah. dragons, literally a currency, and of course Daenerys' name kind of sounding like denarius, uh, the Roman silver coin, and if I'm not mistaken, one of the early synopses of A Game of Thrones, you know, like, on the back of the book, when you're like, do I want to buy or read this book? Mm-hmm. Um, actually describes her as the coin that her brother's using to, like, buy an army mm-hmm. or whatever. Interesting. I did not realize that. Okay. I wrote about this in, like, 2013. <sighs> I <edited> that out. <laughs> um, but for now, Jamie says that he, aka Bruce Bolton, already knows. No one's gonna speak against it. That's the point. She's like, why are you telling me your father's secrets? And he's like, no, the hand secrets. I don't have a father anymore. Fatherless. Oh my god, damned. Damn. <laughs> yeah. and he's like, I pay my debts and I promise Lady
0: Stark the girls. He begins to tell her that Cersei believes Sansa orchestrated it. And Brienne, again, will not chill for any second of her life. She unfurls her Sansa Stark defense squad banner. She blames Tyrion. Good for you. And they discuss Tyrion's trials, which were, I quote, a bloody mess and the deaths that it brought. And Tyrion, of course, is in the Black Cells till they kill him. Brienne has the same dawning realization Cersei had halfway through, that Jaime doesn't believe Tyrion did it. And Jaime says it has to be Sansa. Tyrion would never follow him in Kingslaying, and he was keeping silent to protect Sansa Stark, obviously.
1: Yeah, and he's like, No, I fucking wish I could sell her out. But anyways. Um, of course, like all of this denial in Jamie's chapter is because again, we haven't seen Jamie and Tyrion interact yet and in his chapters, maybe either of them, and to make it more impactful, right, when Tyrion's like, Joke's on you, I did kill him, I did not. Um, but I'm gonna say I did and then kill our dad. Um Brienne, though, she's like, I'm not going to stand for Sansa Stark's slander and injustice. And it exclaims as much, and he calls her the stupid stubborn bunch, and then he remembers, and then she blushes, and she's like, uh, my name is... My name is Chica Chica Brienne of Tarth. <laughs> McLovin. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie sighed. I have a gift for you. He reached down under the Lord Commander's chair and brought it out, wrapped in folds of crimson velvet. Brienne approached as if the bundle was like to bite her, reached out a huge freckled hand and flipped back a fold of cloth. Rubies glimmered in the light. She picked the treasure up gingerly, curled her fingers around the leather grip, and slowly slid the sword free of its scabbard. Blood and black the ripples shone. A finger of reflected light ran red along the edge.
0: Is this Valyrian steel? I have never
1: seen such colors. Nor I. There was a time that I would have given my right hand to wield a sword like that. (laughs) Now is not the time, James! (laughs) He's real real smug about it, too, because he's like, Now it appears I have. So the blade is wasted on me. Take it. Before she could think to refuse, he went on, A sword so fine must bear a name. It would please me if you would call this one Oathkeeper.
0: Ah, he said the thing, you guys. Oathkeeper. We heart a feminist king who sends his side chick out (laughs) to do his jobs for us. Oh, I see. What? Sorry, did I say that? Who said that? (sighs) I'm just trying to avoid my actual feelings, so I have to, you know, amplify that one, because I still do think it's bullshit. But January 1st, 2002. Somebody asked George about some Valyria-related subjects. Particularly, one of them that did get a response was, did Tobomot, think back to a Game of Thrones with Tobomot, you guys, ever teach Gendry the secrets of reworking Valyrian steel? Interesting question, said George. So, this was back in 2002. Obviously, we know Tobomot, made these two swords, Widow's Whale and Oath Keeper. So the answer to this question has to be yes at this point, because why would George say interesting question?
1: Yeah, and like, why else would he have that set up there like that? Just thought I'd bring it up here, because I mm-hmm. feel like that
0: is a confirmed thing now. <laughs> like, I feel like yeah. that should just be confirmed. It's Side not. note, I, I think of
1: applesauce not. whenever I think of Tobomot. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I love that. <laughs>
1: Uh, Also, I'm just like, (sighs) Jamie Lannister's just out here regifting swords. He has like no second thoughts or qualms about it. And I'm over here like, am I allowed to regift things that my villagers gave me to other villagers? Oh, I do it all the time. Like, I know everyone does it and I should do it. And Mira is out here being like, yeah, just go prank Daisy with this if you don't like it. Whatever, give it away. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, Mira.
0: Jamie tells Brienne the price that comes with Oathkeeper, that Cersei plans to kill Sansa Stark. Again, Brienne breaks the no-interrupting rule that was previously put down, and he's like, calm the calamity that is your memories, Brienne, and I need you to listen. He tells her to find Sansa and keep her safe, so they can keep their vows, and Brienne's like, oh, I thought, I thought you were gonna like, oh... And he's like, yeah, and he's annoyed as fuck with her, and he's like, here's the breakdown. This sword is one of two made up of Ned's swords. So you will be rescuing Sansa with Sansa's father's sword. It's a whole thing. There's the thematics, Brienne. You're welcome.
1: Yes, he's like, I did the analysis for you. Congrats. That's what I usually do for you all. So Jamie was Chloe here. Uh, In 2001 at
0: Philadelphia Worldcon, the big buzz at the time was that there was a new POV for Feast, unrevealed at the time, and that George was having issues telling big events without adding this said new point of view. I thought it was incredible because that POV was Brienne. This chapter, sending Brienne off with a sword, was George's cue to bring her in as a full-time POV to tell her story, as well as others in the story, like the Quiet Isle and the Children at the Inn, their stories as well. Uh, Yeah, this is the turning point. This is probably what made George go, ah, fuck. And Why then would it becomes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's true. That's true. George, but... fuck, one more book. <laughs> oh my god. Thirteen more books. <laughs>
0: Next anyway,
1: week. yeah. We got insider knowledge from no one. From literally <laughs> no one. Fish, the oh insider
0: from express.co.uk.
1: Why does anyone believe him? <laughs>
0: Stop listening to him. <laughs> he
1: he thinks so, too. I know. He's just like, why is anyone believing me? Anyways. He's
0: not even posting about it anymore. That's the funniest part. Like, no. people are just taking things he says out of context. Ugh.
1: Brienne attempts to apologize for believing him to be complicit in his family's scheming, and he cuts her off once more.
0: Take the bloody sword and go before I change my mind. There's a bay mare in the stables. As homely as you are, but somewhat better trained. Chase after steel shanks, search for Sansa, ride home to your Isle of Sapphires. It's not to me. I don't want to look at you anymore. Jamie. Kingslayer. Here, reminded her. Best use that sword to clean the wax out of your ears, wench. We're done.
1: Stubbornly, she persisted. Joffrey was your- My king. Leave it at that. You say Sansa killed him. Why protect her? Because
0: Joff was no more to me than a squirt of seed in Cersei's cunt, and because he deserved to die. I have made kings and unmade them. Sansa Stark is my last chance for honor.
1: Damn. All of this real, Yeah. Chills, bro. All of this really drives home again, though, uh, that contrast between Jamie and Catelyn again. Both are sons, both are kings. One expansion, vengeance, the other's like, I don't know, whatever. Of Cedia, you know. I, n- I nutted once. I nutted three times, actually, at least. Yeah. At the very least.
0: <laughs> Jamie tells Brienne that kingslayers should band together anyways, and she bows out, swearing to find Sansa for both his and Catelyn's sake. And then he pulls out Quill and Ink ready to add to his own page to write it all down
1: yes i love this i love this like part and uh i was actually talking to chloe about it i was like oh, i'm too excited to talk about this part but oh my God. we'll read it this quote let's see if i don't cry challenge i
0: i will confess to you that i've read this quote probably four times this week and cried every time
1: really why yeah.
0: i don't know why it gets me but the last line just gets me dude Gets me real hard. Whatever he chose. (sighs) See, here I go. I'm already doing it. Fucking vodka was supposed to help. Um, Beneath the last line Sir Barristan had entered, he wrote in an awkward hand that might have done credit to a six-year-old being taught his first letters by a maester. Defeated in the Whispering Wood by the young wolf Robb Stark during the War of the Five Kings. Held captive at River Run and ransomed for a promise unfulfilled, captured again by the brave companions and maimed at the word of Vargo Hote, their captain, losing his sword hand to the blade of Zolo the Fat, returned safely to King's Landing by Brienne, the maid of Tarth. When he was done, more than three quarters of his page still remained to be filled between the gold lion on the crimson shield on top and the blank white shield on the bottom. Sir Gerald Hightower had begun his history Sir Barristan had continued it but the rest Jamie Lannister would need to write for himself he could write whatever he chose henceforth
1: whatever he chose he could he could such a great ending and it's such a great like segue so into good. what happens next yes into in his story with uh Tyrion's chapter of course where he starts trying to be a knight Maybe he doesn't save Cersei, but he saves Tyrion. But anyway, we'll get to there in a second. I, I, uh, I do love this. I do love this. Like, chapter is so much like, and the way this goes because like last time we discussed how Jamie was like, man, Barristan, you could have included like at least one of my tourney victories. All right, like something you could have put something good that I did. And then Jamie's now the one writing a story, right? He gets the chance. And, like, we know, right, that Jamie's worldview is changing, and he's now trying to chase after honor and live up to that. And, okay, yes, we broke down the complexity when it comes down to gender and power that's seen just now between Jamie and Cersei, and it's it's very morally ambiguous, but it's also very much about Jamie, right, trying to uphold, as as you said, Chloe, like, His new faith of the White Sword Tower, what it means to him and being better about it or trying to live up to, you know, like all my heroes and all these other things like couldn't live up to chivalry. I wasn't able to do it before, but I never really tried, he thinks, maybe to an extent. And now he's going to actually try... And, you know, all these, they can all be two things at once, like that scene that we were talking about in the White Sword Tower. And this is, of course, part of Jamie's turning, right? It's remarkable that of all the things that he could choose to write in his story, he chose not to write those victories from when he competed in tourneys or, like, frame it as good or anything, right? Even though he could, uh, he chooses to start with his defeats, like, and that's actually when we as the readers get introduced into Jamie's POV and storyline, incidentally. Like and like Jamie doesn't write that he slew twenty men on the way to defeating the traitor Rob Stark and defending the honor of his king Joffrey. It's like he writes, Uh no, I, I I fucking lost, and then I fucked up all these other times right after. Uh he talks about that promise going unfulfilled that he was ransomed for and in the way you know he's kind of leaving it open for brienne as you said to finish that story but for her to take that credit of the happy ending not him and i really find the way that jamie writes his entry in the white book quite revolutionary in the way that a lot of these have been framed right like jamie would define himself as much by his failures as by his accomplishments when given the choice. And in terms of what we see of other entries like Barristan framed in the book, like Barristan is out here writing like, yeah, I was wounded by spear, sword. And I forgot the other one, Arrow at the Trident. Like if he wrote it the way that Jamie Lannister is writing his entry, the way that Barristan would have written it would be wounded and failed to protect his prince during the Battle of the Trident. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it also stands to reason when you think about that, that like, they're different people and their wants, right, at this point. Mm-hmm. For Jamie, this is the first time he's been able to and has wanted to acknowledge these failures. He has never come to terms with them until now, so writing it out is getting it out, right? This is yeah. This is his very first like therapy session with himself in the White Book. It's him being honest with himself for the first time ever of what he did. We've talked a little bit about some of the stuff that happened in season eight of The Bad Show uh, that this book series is based on. And if you guys aren't watching that show or did not watch that show, did not see the finale of Game of Thrones, maybe tune out just for a couple minutes, but Brienne finishes Jamie's book. And we talked about how the book might allude to that last week a little bit in certain ways. And I thought reading what she finished with is something really interesting to keep in mind. Captured in the field at the Whispering Wood, set free by Lady Catelyn Stark in return for an oath to find and guard her two daughters, lost his hand, took River Run from the Tully rebels without loss of life. Important, lured the unsullied into attacking Casterly Rock, sacrificing his childhood home in service to a greater strategy. Outwitted the Targaryen forces to seize Highgarden. Fought at the Battle of the Gold Road bravely, narrowly escaping death by dragon fire. Pledged himself to the forces of men and rode north to join the Winterfell alone. Faced the army of the dead and defended the castle against impossible odds until the defeat of the Night King. Escaped imprisonment and rode south in an attempt to save the capital from destruction. Died protecting his queen. I think there's something so incredibly powerful of the idea of Brienne finishing that story And telling the story that maybe Jamie wouldn't let himself tell, right? There's no one probably better that could tell that story than Brienne. That lived it, or some of it, if not all of it, with him in the end there. uh, Depending on whatever happens moving forward in their plot. I mean, they're obviously going to be strongly linked in The Wins Winner. But I think the fact that Jamie first realized his defeats and the fact that Brienne could possibly get to Turn those defeats into triumphs. Not every good outweighs the bad.
1: And not every bad, vice versa. I I like what you said about Brienne finishing his story. Not like in... It's really sad to think about, but at the same time, like, taken together, it's a story of honor, losing your way, trying to do better. And it's funny because, of course in a physical sense that is what Brienne's story is in feast right she's she's wandering she doesn't quite find Sansa Stark and like that's the point but she's still going around doing the right thing whereas Jamie has been lost spiritually morally for a while finds his way and he started he started many in many ways like Brienne's awakening to hey this is what the world is so it makes sense for her to finish it and To be like, hey, you can sow the seeds for a better world later. To sprout maybe with a dream of spring.
0: It's never too late, you know?
1: Wow, she's actually crying, you guys. I
0: told you I wouldn't be able to do it. (laughs) Fuck
1: you. I'm going to call it out every time it happens on our (laughs) podcast. I'm like, she's actually crying.
0: I don't want to talk about it, and I really don't even care about Jamie Lannister, so...
1: She cares. She's just being so. I don't
0: care. You don't know anything about me. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't even say that with a straight face. (laughs) She's like, we
1: do this podcast every week.
0: Yeah, so I don't know. It's all right. Whatever. Jamie Lannister. He did a thing. And then, uh, yeah. So the next chapters, some crazy shit goes down that we get no perspective from Jamie on.
1: Well, we do and we don't, book. right? We get Tyrion's, we get Tyrion's perceptions of Jamie, and right, we get Tyrion's uh filtered point of view yeah. of Jamie's physicality, and Jamie's very open with Tyrion, right? That's such a ba- they have such a strong relationship, which is why, again, it's so impactful that we don't see them come together until the very end of this book, right? That's a closing of one of Jamie's arcs and it's here with Tyrion, right after you know he had like this this scuffle with Cersei, and then Tyrion just breaks, basically destroys any ties that Jaime was able to have with his family. Uh, even though Jaime still continues to serve the Lannisters in the next book, but he's like, "You thought you were close with Cersei? Uh, no. Uh, you thought you were close with me? No."
0: And what's crazy is it's only it's so it's five chapters later basically that we get to Tyrion eleven. And then there's a handful of chapters before the end. It's not even the end of this book. So like you said earlier, totally understand why people love A Storm of Swords, because it's just like, holy shit after holy shit after holy shit, right? But this is the end of Jamie, though. So we get a couple handful of chapters before the end of the book, or like a handful and a half, whatever. I don't do handful math, but... It's not. This is not the end for the story at all. So Jamie just tapering off here is very interesting. I love the way George pulls
1: back on it, but it is the end for Tywin Lannister. Darn, <laughs> I'm so never sad. Gonna let, let that go. But yeah, I mean, like Jamie's actions here, right, ends up leading to. I, I think that there's a way that you can read it where, as Jamie tries to chase honor. Part of maybe what's been holding him back, same as with all the or siblings, has been their shitty dad. <laughs> and his actions lead to the death of his dad. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something we're going to
0: resonate a lot on as we start a Feast for Crows, because we are going to start at home, right? We're going to uh, start home in King's Landing with Jamie. He's going to be having the vigil over Tywin's funeral. And he's going to come back to thinking about some of those ghosts of the past when past kings in his mind because Tywin is very much so the king in their minds let's be real it's not Tommen <laughs> he doesn't control the realm
1: I mean Cersei is still obviously a big part of how Jamie's trying to interpret like his place in the world and his, by through his relationship and now broken relationship with her but now it starts becoming after that reveal to Tyrion which Jamie had just been keeping right on the edge of his mind throughout all the storm chapters you know he starts now really really trying to define himself not just in relation to Cersei but in relation to his brother mm-hmm. so
0: and his relation with the tyrells growing strong True. across the whole city right that's going to be something that we'll have to uh think about and as we get into chapters like Jamie 2 we're going to hear about his feelings more on Kristen Cole, for example, the Kingmaker, as we talked about last chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of Jamie chapters that are going to be right next to Cersei chapters and Brienne chapters as well. So I'm really excited for some of those different parallels we're going to break on into. And we're going to get Jamie out in the field, get him out to the Riverlands.
1: And you can see George start to hint more towards, like as you were saying, that Kristen Cole... Parallels, yeah, and character with like, there's that line that Jamie has in this chapter, right, of like how he had made an unmade king, so he's like, whatever.
0: Yes, the kingmaker and the kingbreaker.
1: Kingslayer. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I think that wraps us up for Jamie in A Storm of
1: Swords. Holy shit, we got through Damn. it. That was a ride. i They're really good chapters.
0: Really good chapters. There's so much, not even just in Jamie. Just so much happening around him or at him or near him. Stuff to miss that he's not paying attention to. I love it. It is a... It, it Honestly, it's a good addition. It reminds me a lot of Sansa chapters and some of the stuff that happens
1: at court around him. Some of the political stuff that we get to follow. Absolutely. And he's like, I don't know. How does politics work? But it, and in a way, now that I think about it, it when Feast and Dance for one book... That would have been right up against the Barrison chapters, okay. though Barrison was like a last minute addition.
0: Yeah. <sighs>
1: well, Eliana. Well, Chloe.
0: Where can you find us on the internet?
1: Well, you can find us on social media. You know, we have these episodes that, uh, as you said, we're going to start up with Jamie and a face for crows when we come back to. A Song of Ways and Fire. But next week, we're actually going to be doing a His Dark Materials episode. We talked about a subtle knife earlier. Actually, that was just a joke about a subtle knife. But we are reading a subtle knife. Yeah. And stay tuned for when... That episode comes out as well as when that next Song of Ice Ice and Fire episode comes out by subscribing to us on Twitter. You can find us at Girls Gone Canon, C-A-N-O-N, or maybe you too have something that you would like to say to us. You can shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com.
0: Yeah, I get that 10-minute sweet mark in, right? (laughs) Hey, if you are not subscribed to us, please take the time. Go check out your local podcast streaming device that you like, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, you name it, all of those. Subscribe to us there.
1: And, of course, again, speaking of His Dark Materials, we do have a Patreon episode this month, which is about the His Dark Materials series. We are covering the novella Once Upon a Time in the North. But if you still need some more A Song of Ice and Fire content, last month's Patreon episode was about Tyrosh and Dario. (laughs) It's a me A Dario. We talk about undertones.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, blue undertones. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I have been Chloe. And I've been Eliana. Bye y'all. Goodbye
1: i love when kk goes oh his songs
0: i have a villager that their favorite song is comrade kk <laughs> who is it so it's a oh my god grump, grumpy i gotta i'll send uh-huh. you a picture groucho it's groucho Groucho, uh, I think i Of might course, Groucho. Groucho Marks Groucho, I'm like, wow, I'm shaking. Oh, oh, but his favorite song is Comrade K.K. So like, whenever I put it oh on, gosh. he just stands in the square all alone and sings it.
1: <sighs> I haven't put I haven't put music in my square, so I should try that sometime. You should. Okay, I'm stopping recording now.